Hello, it's The Leap of Faith. You're very welcome along. As Stormont this week debated a bill banning conversion therapy for people questioning their sexuality, we'll hear from the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, the Right Reverend Dr David Bruce. Later too, we'll hear from the island of Lesvos in Greece, as plans are set for 28 unaccompanied refugee children to come to Ireland. But first, as more than 3 million devotees bathed in the River Ganges in India last week as part of the Kumela Festival, one of the more important events in the Hindu calendar, the country is seeing global record cases of COVID-19 and many hospitals are running out of oxygen as the crisis mounts. Parna Shukla, who is a Hindu, grew up in Kanpur in Uttar Pradesh, where the River Ganges flows. She's a nurse and midwife, now living in County Meath. Good evening, Aparna. You've relatives in India. What are they telling you about the current outbreak in the country? That's a very emotional question because I have gone through my biggest nightmare very recently, last week, actually, when my dad was very, very ill and he is a COPD patient. So listeners who don't know what is COPD, it's a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease where your lung function is compromised and you're not breathing at your full capacity. And it's a disease that progressively gets worse. And my dad is 80 year old and he um, was tested positive for COVID and he was in a hospital and I was ready to fly. And then I went to airport, I got my COVID test done, RT-PCR, and at that stage, the situation was so bad in India, and even my sister, who was looking after my dad, also tested positive. So she was like, no, you should not come, because we don't want to put your life at risk. And I was advised not to come. And it was so hard for me because I was just crying here all the time, thinking of all that time that I haven't been able to see my dad for almost two years. And like my instinct was to just get on that plane and go to India. But my sister was so adamant that I must not come because she said, what if you fall sick here and there is no medical facility at the moment? We won't be able to look after you and you have a family back home in Ireland. So, yeah, it was. it's very hard. And every day we are receiving calls from our loved ones who are passing away. Very young people, friends. It's so sad. And you're, given your medical background, your instinct is to want to be there and to want to heal. Yes, because I'm a qualified nurse and a midwife. And also I teach yoga and meditation and mindfulness. So, yes, I thought I can go and do so much. Um, Or like, you know, as they say in mindfulness, just the presence I just wanted to be present for my father, but that presence in physical sense wouldn't have even been possible even if I did fly to India because he he wouldn't be allowed to meet anyone with COVID. So that's what my sister was encouraging me to think from my logical mind rather than from my heart and know that I will not be making a right choice by coming home because if I have to pray and meditate for his good health that I'm already doing from here, 
and that time was a very special time only last uh, wednesday we have finished that nine day festival and there are two nine days festival of goddess durga that happen and they are called navratri so it was a time of navratri and my dad i can't say that he is a man of faith because he he doesn't necessarily very much believe in god but for some reason he always fasted for all those nine days it's part of culture so like lot of people who don't even believe very strongly in god they still do things so he would have always had the fast for those nine days and worshiped every morning and followed all the rituals chanted all those mantras and actually my name aparna comes from that um, durga saptashati which is a ancient scripture of goddess durga so whenever my name used to come i remember that he would chant even more um louder so that i can hear and he will say aparna neka varna cha so I, i will be laughing that he picked my name from that book uh, which means goddess uh, parvati so i was thinking of all those times and he wanted to fast even though he was so unwell because he that's what he always did all his life but he was told that no he can't fast his body isn't able to do fasting so he still kept first day fast and i kept that fast as well and my whole family my mother was praying very strongly at home while he was recovering in hospital but luckily we we were very lucky one of those lucky people in india in this very difficult time that he has made a good recovery what to what extent has your faith supported you in this a very big extent i can say because for me god is real you know lot of people question the existence of god or they go and search in temples and different places in river ganges or they think if they do this then god will be with them if they do this then god will be happy but i believe that the god is in you it is nowhere outside if you find that connection to that god it will always always support you in your good and bad time and in india there is a saying where they say sukh mein sumiran sab kare dukh mein kare na koi which means when there are happy times nobody remembers god when then there is a, a atrocity or when you are suffering then you run towards god and start praying a lot but i'm not that person for me my prayer is my discipline my routine and actually that helped me a lot but i was chanting um, goddess durga's mantra and i will chant and recite some of them for you here <clears throat> या देवी सर्वभूतेशु शक्तिपेण संस्थिता नमस्त 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 नमो नम या देवी सर्वभूतेशु शक्तिपेण संस्थिता शांतिपेण संस्थिता 
नमस्ते 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 नमो नमः या देवी सर्वभूतेशु बुद्धिपेण संस्थिता नमस्ते 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 नमो नमः सो इन दिस मंत्र वी से दैट गॉड इज दुर्गा इन द फॉर्म ऑफ पावर in the form of peace and in the form of intelligence she resides in you as i'm listening to you i get the sense that you are so full of gratitude at the moment very much so because as i said that we are one of those lucky ones in the middle of the pandemic that all my family members have have recovered and my father who was critically ill has made a miraculous recovery but of course there is a big part that medical services have played as well and especially in my dad's case one of my youngest sister sister she's a nurse she's a qualified nurse she's pregnant but despite worrying about herself she still came every day twice morning and evening and administered iv injections at home to her dad taking all the precautions and even though india is running out of oxygen there is no oxygen supply in the hospital people who want to buy oxygen at home it's not available but they somehow managed to get the oxygen from their good contacts and with the medical facility that we could arrange for him in these difficult times and with the faith he has made a miraculous recovery so it's a balance of head and heart and i know that it's both that have worked in his case apana shukla thank you so much for joining us tonight on the leap of faith thank you for having me here next this evening on tuesday in northern ireland politicians in the assembly debated conversion therapy the practice of coercive interventions to bring about a change in a person's sexual orientation The non-binding motion argued that it's fundamentally wrong to view the LGBTQ community as needing a fix or cure. It passed by 59 votes to 24. Speaking after the debate, the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, the Right Reverend Dr. David Bruce, said that where protection from coercive interventions and therapy is needed, clarity and balance are also required. Dr. Bruce joins me now from his home. What are the concerns of the Presbyterian Church in relation to this pending legislation? Uh, the concerns that we raised were that legislation can sometimes be a blunt instrument and that the unintended consequence of framing this legislation could have been to outlaw or criminalize some perfectly good and necessary practices particularly where those involve private conversations between a minister or priest uh, a youth worker a youth leader with a young person who is wanting to have a quiet confidential conversation with a trusted person about some deeply personal matters that they're facing themselves and to uh, legislate against all forms of conversion therapy the term itself conversion therapy which is very loosely defined if at all really uh, we felt uh, needed to be carefully scrutinized and so in supporting the motion the private members bill which was brought to the Northern Ireland Assembly Uh, we did so with the caveat that we will be working hard with legislators 
uh, as and when this becomes a bill that is presented as law during the consultative phase to ensure that appropriate protections are put in place uh, to guarantee the religious freedoms that are enshrined within the European Convention on Human Rights. There seems to be the sensitivity that, that seems to have raised its head in this is that people are concerned that what would the, the minister in this particular case be praying for with the person who, who came to them for advice? Yeah, that's a good question and an important one as well. Now, obviously, every story is different. You'll appreciate that. And I, I suppose I can only answer that question on the basis of my own uh, pastoral experience over, over decades. Uh, we, I think, are trying to engage in best practice here, which looks like reflective listening, where a pastor or minister will listen carefully to the story that a young person or indeed an adult is telling them. They'll reflect that back to ensure they've got the story right. And then assuming that the conversation is taking place within the context of faith, so this is a, a person who is within our faith community is coming to speak to us, then we'll respond to their story and we'll perhaps talk about the nature of human love and how that is shaped by God's love for us, an unconditional expression of love and acceptance. We'll talk about the nature of sexual intimacy as a, a gift from God within a framework uh, to be expressed. We'll talk about the place of self-sacrifice within relationships of love. Uh, we'll talk about the challenges of following Christ in a place where morality has frankly become a bit of a marketplace. Um, we'll pray for insight and strength and wisdom to make moral choices which are going to honor God in the course of a person's life. And all of that, of course, framed, as you will probably understand, within our church's understanding of what marriage is and how that is of benefit to society and how it is understood before God as a lifelong union between a man and a woman. So you have taken it from the position where you're saying that there's no notion that this would be about somebody being exercised of something that is evil or otherwise. But at the other side, you're saying that this person may not necessarily have the opportunity to give full vent to their life if they are following a Christian ethos. Again, a very important question and highly nuanced. Uh, let me make a couple of responses to that. Uh, I think the first thing to say would be that as Christians and as a, a church within the Reformed tradition, we're not saying that Jesus died to make us heterosexual. You know, he died to make us whole people. He died in order that we might give full expression to our createdness and our redeemedness in Christ. Now, again, reflecting back on my own experience over years with, with folk who have shared their lives with me in this respect, I know many people who are same-sex attracted uh, who are living lives of faithfulness to Christ within the context of the church and are at a place of, well, I suppose what the Bible calls shalom, a place of peace, a place of equilibrium, where they're at ease with themselves and their personhood, a place of ease with God in their knowledge and relationship with him, and a place of ease with their sexuality. And for them, that is, as I've described, a place of peace and equilibrium. Not I can only reflect back on my experience and say, yes, it's a journey, uh, particularly in a, an environment within popular culture where sexual identity is so closely related to personhood in a way that is possibly not where the Bible takes us, at least not to that extent. Sexual identity is an important part of personhood, but it's not the only part. It's not the definitional part of who we are as people. 
The second thing uh, to say in relation to that uh, would be the, the need for us to be very careful in the language that we use, because language can be deeply destructive uh, and alienating. And I think back over 40 years in ministry and reflect on how 40 years, 30 years ago, I would talk about this issue and I would wince, you know, I would find myself embarrassed and even ashamed to think of some of the things that I said and the way that I said them. I think time has moved on. We're dealing with different categories and in a different environment now and need to be much more deeply sensitive. And as a consequence of that, our church is going through a process of deep reflection about this. We've a series of documents out for consultation regionally and our General Assembly will consider them when it meets in October. And these these documents are trying to coach us and help us to think wisely and well about these matters pastorally as they relate to individuals and their families. We want to get this right, which takes us back, of course, to the discussion we're having about the law, because if the law is not helping us here, then uh, we really are in a difficult place. What we're wanting to do is build a platform where really ex- a really excellent piece of law can be put in place that will be for the, the good of everyone, uh, respecting the individual freedoms that we have, respecting the rights of conscience that we have, recognizing that there are really good things that happen and we don't want to lose them. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. But with your insight into the, 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 the what Christianity brings to us, the one driver in this discussion is the word shame is the idea that somebody would be driven to some form of, of therapy or some form of intervention from another person to, to help them overcome the shame they're experiencing. That, that, again, is an important dynamic in our understanding of the gospel. Uh, society in general at the moment is reluctant to talk about brokenness or shame or regret or even religious categories like repentance as being somehow uh, the uncovering or an expression or the loading of guilt onto an individual uh, who may or may not feel the need to feel blame or regret or uh, to feel any sense of having done anything wrong. And yet at the heart of the Christian gospel, because on the one hand it's uh, it's an expression of God's grace to us that he forgives us, The other half of that, of course, is that when we acknowledge that we need to be forgiven, we're also acknowledging that we need to be forgiven, that there is something amiss, that there is a degree of brokenness within us. I'm saying that as my own personal story. I'm not necessarily offering that to everybody else, although I think it is an important part of our presentation of the good news in saying that God in Christ accepts us and forgives us. We're by necessity, by definition, acknowledging that we need such forgiveness. So I I have no difficulty talking about brokenness and shame because I know that it relates to all of us. I have four fingers pointing back to me as I point my finger at somebody else. I know that I'm a broken person. The Right Reverend Dr. David Bruce, thank you for joining us this evening. Well, following further delays to the resettlement of children to Ireland from the Maria refugee camp in Greece, Bishop Dennis Brennan, chair of the Bishop's Council of Ireland, recently called on the Irish government to act quickly and decisively to bring these children to safety. Joining me now is Philip Worthington, who works in the Maria camp on the Greek island of Lesbos. His organisation, European Lawyers in Lesbos, was the recipient of the 2019 Peace Prize, Pax Christi International. And Evelyn Byrne, Director of the Irish Refugee Protection Programme at the Department of Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth. You're both very welcome. Evelyn, can I begin with you? Can you bring us up to date on the status of the children? 
we are in the um, process of arranging to bring the children and also 50 people in family groups to Ireland. So we're in the process of ensuring that our staff who are traveling to Greece are vaccinated uh, and that we have all the arrangements in place to interview and bring the children and families to Ireland where they are going to be very much welcomed and very much part of the Irish Refugee Protection Programme. Um, I think I think the last time I spoke to you, Michael, it was in the context of the Holocaust Education Trust mm. uh, and my role there. And we, we all look back at, at that dreadful period in history and we ask ourselves, what would we have done at that time? The refugee crisis is a crisis of our time. And I believe that the Irish government is playing a very strong role, not just in the, the children and families that we receive into Ireland, but also as a very, very strong voice in Europe uh, for solidarity for refugees and for ensuring that in this time of crisis, Ireland steps up to the plate. And Philip Worthington, you're on the ground there in Lesbos, part of the European Lawyers in Lesbos organisation. Um, as we hear Evelyn outline the story of the 28 children, you might put it in context for us what it's actually like there on the ground. Um, the, the situation on the ground uh, is that there are 8,000 people living in what is a temporary camp on Lesbos because there was a fire uh, in September last year which destroyed the um, the Moria camp on the island um, that resulted in in the, the, the 15 or so thousand people who were living in the camp at the time to be re- relocated to this temporary facility. That is due to be replaced later this year by a, by a new facility. Um, but it's important to bear in mind that the conditions in in the camp are are very challenging. Um, most the vast vast majority of people are living in tents. Um, over the course of winter, there's been limited access to electricity, to hot water, um, and um, the process that people are going through is a very challenging one. This is particularly the case, of course, for unaccompanied children. And um, at the time of the fire last September, there was more than four hundred unaccompanied children living in the camp. Um, They were then relocated to uh, locations across Greece and then in the process of being relocated uh, to various European countries. And Evelyn, as Philip outlines that story there, what have been the challenges for the Irish government in its its, uh, negotiation of this whole process? I think one of the key points that Philip has made, which is is really important, is that each and every one of these people, children and families, are individuals who have undergone an extremely traumatic situation. Um, From the point of view of the unaccompanied minors, the European Union decided in November, December to pause relocation in order to consider the future of these children. Uh, One of the things that they wanted to look at was... um, whether these children had families elsewhere in Europe that might be able to provide them with support when they traveled. So rather than simply relocate them uh, to different countries, they looked at each case and uh, sought to find out whether there was a family who could support the child in in a European country. So that did cause a delay in the the processing, but nevertheless, I think it was the right decision because we are making life-changing decisions for these children. We're also bringing in a group of families. One must be very, very conscious that these are people who have experienced enormous trauma in their lives. Um, the, the supports which they require when they arrive in Ireland are, first of all, a warm welcome. 
which I'm very pleased to say that the Irish public is an exceptionally welcoming public. Um, when refugee families arrive in Ireland, one of the first questions, literally at the airport, they ask, when can children start school? Because they are very conscious that for them, um, the parents sometimes life has not been good and they have almost written off their own futures, but they are seeking to find a future for their children. What role do you have in the continuation of their faith formation? Faith is a very personal issue. Um, when we interview families in uh, Lebanon, Amman, or in this case in Greece, we outline to them what the cultural and faith uh, background is in Ireland, but we assure them that their faith will be respected uh, and very much celebrated. So for, for at the moment, we're in the holy month of Ramadan and in our emergency centres, the, the food and the life in the centres is geared around supporting our families who are, who are celebrating Ramadan and we celebrate with them. Uh, we live in a world of uh, interfaith and we very much celebrate that in the Irish Refugee Protection Programme. And as a matter of fact, somebody sent me a photograph recently of a lovely piece of woodwork that was done by some of our kids in a Dungarvan school, which was a symbol of Ramadan and the school in Dungarvan, uh, the woodwork teacher there, had helped the young man to make this beautiful uh, symbol of Ramadan. So all of our refugees feel very comfortable. Uh, I, I have never received any uh, complaint from a refugee that they were in any way um, made to feel less welcome in Ireland or unable to practice their religion. Clearly, um, you know, in some in some areas, um, it's not as easy to, to uh, find a mosque, but religion is an important part. Philip, we heard Evelyn describing a level of welcome here in Ireland, but I believe there's a general level of, I suppose, fatigue is the, the technical word for it, for the people on the islands in Greece uh, towards the situation there. Um, yes, I think that's very true. I think there's um, fatigue on both sides from um, the local Greek population and obviously fatigue from the um, asylum seekers as well. And it's important to remember as well that uh, the time that people spend in the camps in Greece is actually the, the final step of the, of, the, of the journey. They may have spent months or years as well on the journey um, through Turkey to Greece. So there's already been um, a, a very long time that they've been going through the process. And I think that it's very, very important to remember that this is not a Greek issue. It's uh, fundamentally a European issue. And um, I think uh, displays of solidarity, such as the relocation mechanism uh, to Ireland and other European countries, is absolutely fundamental. Um, it's critical that the process is not solely on the shoulders of, of, of Greece, but actually is um, shared across uh, the entire European Union. Philip Worthington and Evelyn Byrne, thank you both for joining us tonight on The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be on the programme. Thank you very much for inviting me to take part in the programme. And that's our leap of faith. Our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. Our broadcast coordinator is Charlotte Holland. From them and me, Michael Cummins. Good night.